Welcome to the NPFCC Messages Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to prioritize your spiritual growth by intentionally absorbing the Word of God. In this message series, Foundation, we're taking a close look at our core beliefs and how our foundational understanding of the nature of God guides the way we live and see the world. Our prayer is that we would build our foundation on the words and the way of Jesus. Uh, Herbert Simon, guy, uh, smart man back in the 70s, coined the phrase attention economy. Not sure if you've heard this before, but uh, it was way back in the 70s referring to the explosive rise in limitless information. He argued, and that was back in the 70s, we have surely uh, have been in an increasing limitless rise of limitless information, but he argued back then that the rise in available information, with that, there is a rise in the perceived need to absorb it all. And taking this amount of information in consumes one of the most valuable resources that we have, our attention. This is a problem. Because the truth is, as Herbert would argue, and some of you may argue against it, some of you women in the room, that there really no, there's no such thing as multitasking, okay, truly. Uh, but our minds can only absorb so much, and yet there are literally millions, billions of captivating images, stories, and products accessible to us instantly at any given moment. And all of these things are contending for your attention. Our poor brains just don't know what to do with it all. As, I'm, as I was writing this message uh, this, this week on my laptop, I had my Bible open on my desk, my phone next to me. I'm texting a friend from Colorado about his marketing company. I'm getting notifications from an online guitar forum. I'm responding to an email from Hume Lake. I'm liking a post made in an Instagram dad's group. I'm looking up articles online about attention economy. I'm listening to a podcast on prayer. I'm clicking the, the YouTube sidebar because something interesting popped up. Uh, I'm loading my to-do list uh, on my notes app with the things I can't get to now but need to tomorrow. I'm texting my wife about remembering to bring home Isaac's hat and water bottle from baseball practice, which I remembered, except I tried to pick him up at Sequoia and he was practicing at Hickory. I'm blowing my nose incessantly from this dumb four-week cold. Um, My mind drifts to think about our new amazing puppy, who's the cutest thing since baby Hopi. And uh, my mind starts to worry about being ready for an event I've got next week, a camp I'm doing the week after that, Easter in Mexico after that, and all of this happened in, oh, two and a half minutes. (laughs) Like I said. And you know what really sucks about this? Is that I am not alone. Uh, on, on a national scale for certain, maybe even a global scale, I'm not alone. Uh, I'm not uniquely busy or anything. I'm just a young man living in America in the 21st century with unlimited info in my pocket and giant tech companies strategizing day and night to gain access to more and more slices of the pie of my attention. And that's happening to you and to you and to you and to you and to all of us. I think it's really important as followers of Christ that we need to view this as not an attention economy, but an attention war. What the devil and really smart CEOs know very well is that what we contemplate, we become. Huibi Tan, a Christian writer from Singapore, says, you are what your mind looks at. You are what you contemplate. Uh, Said another way, the poet uh, Mary Oliver once said, attention is the beginning of devotion, for better or for worse. Now, I know we all feel it, right? We all feel the anxiety that this this causes all of us. We've never spent more times on screens in our entire lives. We've never numbed out to so many shows. We've never been so addicted to anything in our whole lives as we are to our phones. Surely this is not what God envisioned for us. Richard Foster great writer on spiritual discipline and development, says, today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to Him. He grieves that we've forgotten Him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and and manyness. He longs for our presence. We feel that, don't we? 
So is there a practice from the life of Jesus that can bring us back into oneness with the Imago Dei, the image of God originally seated inside of us from the beginning of creation? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus that can carry us back to that form? And the answer is yes, it's called prayer. The good news is, is that uh, St. Teresa of Avila says, when it comes to prayer, we're all beginners, which is great news because when, I, when Ken first told me that I was going to give the message on prayer, just how it worked and he's in Cambodia, I was just like, this, this is not a topic that, that I, I thought that I had a good grasp on. And so it was a, it's a very difficult week for me just in study and preparation, but so rich at the same time that God would just inform me and inspire me and encourage me with this practice that I am not fully living into, uh, but that I've just been awakened for the need to. But before we get into some of the details of prayer today, let me just give you a 30,000-foot view. When many of us think of prayer, we, what comes to mind might be sitting in a circle with some other people. Uh, each person takes a turn presenting their requests to God. Maybe you think of sitting around a dinner table uh, and, and saying a quick, uh, Lord, thanks for the day, bless this meal. Or maybe you think about it in context of, of a church setting where we often invite you up to come forward or go back and pray with somebody. Someone lays a hand on you and, and says a word of prayer over you. And all that is included in prayer, but I just want to encourage us all to expand our view of prayer a whole lot today. I want us to see that prayer is not just another tool that we use to deepen our spiritual lives, just kind of like another practice that we tack on, but prayer is really the end goal of our life with God. What God really wants for you and for me is this open line of communication with, with us, that he can communicate to us, that we can hear his voice, and that we can speak to him freely and openly at any time. Prayer is relationship, because what, what does God want more than relationship with us? We were, were we not created in the beginning to walk in the garden of, in the cool of the day with him, to be right by his side, to hear his voice, to follow him, to enjoy creation with him, and will we not one day at the restoration of all things be in His presence continually, sitting with Him, eating with Him, just enjoying His presence. And so prayer is living that reality now in as much fullness as we possibly can. Prayer is simply just an active, personal, ongoing, intimate relationship with God. And if we don't first and foremost approach it like this, we will have missed prayer altogether. So Jesus certainly had this connection with God uh, that was so deep and so obvious to all those around him uh, that they were dying to know his secret. I love this uh, little snippet that uh, was pointed out to me by a commentator this week, as it says that um, of all the things that his disciples, while they were with Jesus on earth, of all the things that they could have been curious about, that they could have asked Jesus specifically to teach them, um, of all the things, the one thing they said, Lord, teach us to pray. That was the one thing that they asked Jesus. We, we really need you to, to teach us this. They didn't, they didn't ask Jesus how to cast out demons or uh, to walk on water or to make a fiesta out of five tacos. No, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's what would be my first thing that I would ask Jesus to teach me. There's so many incredible things that he did, but, but something about the life of Jesus, his connection with the Father was so potent and so obvious and so insatiable that the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to have that kind of connection with God the Father. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And this was Jesus' response, the well-known Lord's Prayer, or if you're Catholic, the Our Father. So let's actually, this morning, let's stand together, and we're going to read this together. And uh, if you can say it from memory, great. I know some of you may have memorized it in different translation or whatnot, so we'll center ourselves on this one from the, uh, the newer NIV version. But let's read this together. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Awesome. You can have a seat. Now, we are going to do a little bit of dissecting of this text in a minute. Uh, but before I address that, let me just address this one thing. Uh, like, like I mentioned, prayer is relationship. Yes, of course. And in any relationship, you can have an open line of communi- communication. You can say whatever is on your heart. And there's obviously this openness to discuss and listen and hear and be dynamic. But it is interesting that when the disciples asked, teach us to pray, Jesus didn't just say, say anything that comes to your mind. Just say whatever's on your heart. You do you. Just be free. He actually gave them something to pray, something specifically. And I I do believe that Jesus wanted us to pray this prayer exactly, word for word, at times. But then he also, which the early church did, and the church does at large still to this day in some traditions, three times a day, they say the Lord's Prayer over and over. It has been passed down from generation to generation, thousands and thousands of years. But I also think that Jesus uh, intended this prayer to be a template or a model from which to build our prayer life on top of. He wisely gave us this very concise, very easily memorizable, memorable, whatever you say, prayer. My head's still in the the sick fog. Uh, he, He gave us this concise prayer so that the entire world could center ourselves on this and all come back to it. But at the same time, it acts like a trellis, which we can grow our relationship with God and expand on it. And so we use this as our base, and, and they can keep us focused on the most important truths of God. And they reveal so much deep and rich theology about ourselves and about, about God. So let's just spend a few moments just dissecting this prayer and seeing how this life of prayer can bring us back into wholeness with God. So let's start with the first word, our. From the first word, This model prayer is loaded with meaning and intentionality. First and foremost, our relationship with God is communal, right? It's not an accident that Jesus says our uh, uh, instead of my, right? Is is God personal? Of course he is, uh, but he's primarily communal. And Jesus wants us to remember that we are not alone, that we are part of a family, and uh, that, that, that we are part of a, a family of faith comprised of people who lived and died long before us, people that will come uh, long after us. Jesus wants us to know that this faith thing is a family thing. Why do you think we say uh, welcome home all the time here? It's on our signage and every banner and flag and printed material. Welcome home. Why? Because our, our. Because Jesus started his model prayer with this idea that this faith thing is a family thing. In fact, the entire prayer is communal. And so we have to read this prayer with the the lens of plurality, that that we are in this together. That yes, we have an individual faith, faith, but we have a, a collective faith as well. Our faith begins and is sustained in community. And like sheep apart from a herd, we are vulnerable, exposed, isolated, prone to wander, easily distracted. Uh, by whatever grass is greenest and doomed to be eaten by wolves, okay? So we are are doing this thing together. So our also connects us to the global church. Uh, Galatians 3, 28 reminds us, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So from word one in the Lord's prayer, we have to know that there is neither... (laughs) Thanks, Jim. (laughs) Appreciate it. Is it annoying you, the sniffling? <laughs> I'm sorry. You're just going to have to get used to it. <laughs> I'm three weeks in and there's no stopping this thing. <coughs> uh, you're good, dude. You're good. I appreciate it. Um, from word one in the Lord's Prayer, we have to know that uh, there's neither black nor white, African nor Asian, tall or small, dumb or smart, rich or poor, young or old. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, on a micro level at home, when I pray this word, our, I immediately just think of the the ones next to me, my kids, my wife. Um, The word our means that if I keep my faith to myself, uh, I'm messing it up. It reminds me that my primary role is to help my kids find their real father, uh, to help my wife find and connect with her real Abba, to help my neighbors meet their dad. Uh, The hour immediately connects me to the heart of Jesus who doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, uh, 2 Peter 3.9. 
The hour seeks to connect me with all of humanity. It seeks to level my pride and status and titles and accomplishments. It seeks to keep me on mission and fill me with compassion. The hour seeks to give me the eyes of God for all mankind. It invites me to see people as He sees them and treat them like I would treat my own family, to love them as I love myself. All this and much, much more is packed into the first word of the Lord's Prayer. You could see already how if you're going to use the Lord's Prayer as a template to begin your prayers, that just, just a few words can really catapult your life of prayer with God. Now, moving on. Our Father. I read an article on the idea of God as Abba Father this week. That word Abba we'll get into in a second. Uh, this article was by a man named Tyler Staten that uh, just floored me. And for the sake of time, I'll, I'll summarize it and link it in the sermon notes online. But Staten insightfully traces the effects of sin all the way back to uh, the garden and, and claims that our view of God in the Garden of Eden was tainted. See, in the beginning, we walked with God in the cool of the day, like I mentioned before. He was as real to us as any other creature in the garden, right? God sheltered them. He looked them in the eye. He listened. He provided them the protection of a father and the intimacy of a friend. Then, after Adam and Eve sinned, they suddenly feared God. Something changed, right? They resisted Him. They misunderstood Him, and they hid from Him. And that provided a new normal for all of humanity. Our view of God forever changed. So, kind of speeding through history, later on the, the, the religious leaders, still holding a warped view of God, mind you, added their own rules to an absurdly long list of rules, 613 to be exact, with the plan to live holy enough lives to get God's attention, maybe to get God's favor. Maybe they could follow the rules enough to convince Him to, to reach out and stretch out that strong right arm again. Now, their view of God was clear in the name that they used for him, Yahweh. Now, of course, this was a name that God did give, God himself gave to Moses, yes. Yahweh means I am that I am. But the religious leaders went to great lengths to show incomparable reverence for this name. Not that that alone is a, a bad thing, but they gave his real name a nickname so that they wouldn't offend him or violate them. Then, in order to shield them even further from getting anywhere close to breaking the law, they began using other names like Adonai, which meant Lord, the ancient equivalent for calling someone Sir. It was respectful, it was formal, but it was keeping the proper distance. Now, all this reverence and ritual and religion multiplied over generations and hundreds of years, then Jesus walks into the scene and called God Abba. Abba wasn't even a Greek word. It was an Aramaic word, the language only the poor peasants would use. You see, Abba had no equivalent in the Greek language. Greeks didn't have an equivalent because no Greek would address their father with that much intimacy. It wasn't even baked into their culture. The closest thing that we have uh, in English to Abba is daddy. But even that doesn't quite translate because Abba wasn't something you'd be ashamed to say to your father as a 20-something, right? It, it, was a, it, was a, it was a term of endearment from a son to a father. And Jesus spoke to Yahweh with such familiarity, right, that we can't even translate this word, Abba. Uh, there's a German theologian by the name of Joachim Jeremias, and he writes, there is not a single example of the use of Abba as an address to God in the whole of Jewish literature. No one else talked to God like that, because in their warped view of God, that's not how you speak to an authority whose name you can't stomach saying out loud and whose favor you're trying to coax through moral perfection right? Jesus was doing a new thing. Or actually, was He? Or was He just going back and redeeming that false view of God, going all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve? I think He was. John, uh, John Tyson says, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. 
Now, maybe some of us simply don't pray because somewhere in our minds, we still hold God to be an angry tyrant in the sky who's generally displeased with you because you still can't quite keep all the commandments. Now, Jesus needs to start with the image of God because that's where the enemy started, with the image of God. If you don't trust, if you don't love God, you'll never have any level of discipleship to Him. So Jesus is teaching us in this prayer that the primary way in which we ought to view God is as a loving, compassionate, intimate, gentle, tender, patient, forgiving, protecting, self-sacrificing father. The kind of father whose kids have zero reservation running up into the arms of their daddy. Not like the fathers some of us have grown up with, but as a true father, the real father, the Abba father. Jesus prayer invites us to destroy the false images of God and replace them with the real ones. He calls us to quit projecting onto God our own feelings about ourselves and our own experiences and our own assumptions about who He is. In the second word of Jesus' model prayer, He is wooing us back to the arms of the Father. the, The image of Abba is so insanely critical to our, our life with God because so many of us live in this chronic state of disbelief in the love of God. We may, we may think about it intellectually, but, it, but, to, but to, to really believe the idea, but, but to know uh, because we, we view ourselves as, um, as sinful and the perpetual shame cycle in our lives causes us to not love ourselves and therefore prevent us from fully welcoming the love of the Father. Uh, Henry Nouwen says this, Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a real great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes in the way that they're part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we've come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody. My dark side says I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. And then catch this. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. And being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Said in a uh, less wordy way, Brendan Manning uh, in his book Abba's Child simply says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. There's no way Jesus used this word in this prayer on accident. We must, must, must right our wrong view of God before we can progress any further into intimacy and relationship with Him. Now, the other aspect of this prayer is, um, is, uh, is the order in which it comes. There is a time to revere God. We're going to get there in a few words. He is holy. He's set apart. But first and foremost, He has a settled condition of compassion towards you, and that should set the tone for everything else to follow. So in our times of prayer, we have to find the space, as Rich Biota says, for our souls to be kissed by God. Now, we're not going to talk at any length about uh, the four types of prayer today. There's talking to God, there's talking with God, there's listening to God, there's being with God. But this last one, being with God, is the idea of contemplative prayer, where the whole goal is the idea that you quiet your mind long enough for you to see God loving you. Now, the second century Christian writer Ignatius had this phrase, looking at God, looking at you, describing the state of prayer where words aren't even needed, but rather just sitting in the Father's company alone filled your heart with His love. Now, I think I have too many kids to, to appreciate this type of prayer, uh, but, but I like the idea, right? I like the idea. But it, it, is, it is this kind of posture that the word Abba 
describes. And as we pursue prayer more intentionally, we do have to find space and time simply to behold Him beholding us, to sincerely imagine God's love being poured out and emptied on you. But let us continue. So, our Father in heaven. Just really quick on this one. The word heaven here is the Greek word oranos, which literally means the air or atmosphere or the sky. Now, this word certainly does mean the realm above the earth, apart from the earth, like God is sitting somewhere else. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. It's a a name. uh, It's the same word that's used in the next line uh, that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So certainly it is a separate place. But it also has this this other meaning. Uh, It can simply mean the air that is all around you the air that we are breathing in. And so Jesus very well have been alluding to the idea that God is as close as your breath. The God who formed you and breathed into your nostrils the breath of life is still breathing life into you in every breath that you take. He's right up against you. He's all around you. He's even in your blood. He's in your lungs. And God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And so this idea would certainly pair well with God as Abba. The tender love of God is never far and is readily available. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So naturally, after Jesus teaches us to approach God as a close, loving Father, He also encourages us to revere Him as a holy, almighty, powerful, and beautiful God. We are to hallow His name. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus, who is God, right, is teaching us to tell God Himself how awesome he is. Um, Now, why does God need us to remind him how good he is? Is God like a megalomaniac and needs our recognition? I I don't necessarily think so. There's something else going on here. God's got all of creation and and the angels that do that already in heaven. There's more to it. Uh, Again, Tyler Staten in the Rule of Life podcast would argue that before we enter a state of prayer, if you think about it, uh, where we hallow his name, where have we been previously? in the world, right? Living, living in this world. And uh, with all of its distractions, with all of its lies, with all of its imitation and counterfeits. So one of the first things that we have to do as we approach God in prayer is to reorient our minds to see God for who He truly, really is, the truth of His nature, to, re- to remind ourselves that He and He alone is better than life, as I read from uh, the psalmist, uh, 63, verse 3. It's to remind ourselves that He is holy, unique, special, beautiful, that there's no other being in creation that's more beautiful and powerful than Him. Another commentator pointed out that there's an obvious discrepancy in how God's name is treated in heaven and on earth. Isaiah uh, 6.3 gives this picture of the angels continuously praising God's name in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In contrast, Isaiah 52.5 says about earth, All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Now, many of us can understand. We feel this tension, right? Our world is not kind to God, does not revere Him, does not fear Him, does not love Him, does not rightly cherish His character. So Jesus is teaching us that in our prayers, in our relationship with Him, something of the utmost importance is to join in the activity of heaven in praising His name, to reject earth's narrative about God, and to embrace the reality of his nature. Now, for the sake of time, um, uh, I I don't want to totally get all into this, but there's an amazing, amazing uh, concept that Dr. Andrew Newberg uh, pointed out, uh, this this idea that comes from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says, we are, uh, as we behold his glory, we are being transformed into ever-increasing glory. He argues that the more we contemplate God, our brains are actually rewired, and uh, we actually gain the, the capacity for compassion and, and love. But the converse is also true, that if we have a negative view of God and we, and we uh, constantly think about that negative view, it rewires our brain in such a way to give us symptoms similar to P- PTSD, and it, and it rewires your brain to th- uh, be more fearful and aggressive. It's a fascinating uh, read. I will, again, I'll link to it in the notes. But it is super important for us to think rightly about God. And I think Jesus was getting to this in his model prayer for us. So moving on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this one is so important, church. The, uh, the kingdom 
is, is really Jesus' central teaching. And we've talked about this before, but Jesus taught more on the kingdom than any other subject. And as followers, we have to do everything we can to reorient our, our lives under the governance of God, not our government, not our rulers, but under God's governance, God's, uh, God's, God's reality for this world. There's so much I could say on this part of the prayer, but let me just address two, two things in particular. Number one is that this, this prayer really is a prayer of participation, not resignation. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, this assumes, right, that there is a part of the kingdom that has not come yet, right? That there is a, a part of God's will that has not been done yet on earth as it is in heaven, right? There's still a kingdom of darkness that is encroaching on the kingdom of light. We can all see this, right? Easy assumption to make. But now again, as with the hallowing idea, why would Jesus teach us to ask God for this if one, he was going to do it himself anyway, and two, if he was going to do it without us? Rich Viotis points out that God wants to get something done in me and through me. He says that the church needs a rebuke here because for too long we've sat on our hands and resigned the kingdom building to God alone. And the truth is, Jesus is teaching us to pray in such a way that I would allow God to get his work done in me and through me. We need to see this prayer as participatory and ask God with a willing spirit, where can I sow kingdom seeds? Where can I build kingdom walls today, God? What part of your will that's yet to be done can you do through me? Now, can God do it all on his own? Of course. Does he sometimes? Probably. Does he most of the time? Probably not. From my reading of Scripture, God's preferred tool to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as wild as it sounds, is you and I, his body, the church. So at least once a day, maybe three times a day, maybe continually throughout the day, part of our communication, our relationship with God must include a simple, here I am, send me. And this can be a simple breath prayer as you go throughout your day. Maybe before you step out of bed, walk into a meeting, order coffee, Step back into the war zone. I mean, your house. Um, just say, here I am. Send me. Now, onto the second aspect of this. Does, does prayer actually make a difference? Now, this is a big topic. Whole books and college courses and denominational splits, you know, are, are over this idea of God's sovereignty and his dynamic open relationship with us, right? There's no way... I'm going to get into all the details of this, but I'll offer you just a few simple thoughts on this huge question. Do my prayers actually change anything, or is God going to do it anyway? Now, I personally, Devin Bumstead, with my current background, with my life experiences, with my family origin, with my place and time of birth, with my personality type, right? Those are all my highly tainted lenses in which I see the world. I kind of lean towards God's going to do it anyway. Like my natural bent says like, I don't, I don't know. Like, do my prayers really make a difference? I, I think God's just going to do it anyway. But, he, but li listen to me. I am, I am growing to distrust my assumptions. Okay? The longer and closer I, I look at I really look at the way Jesus lived, his teachings, the way the early church was moved by the Spirit. If I'm actually going to follow Jesus's example, then I'm, I think I need to change my mind. <laughs> and I, I was reading this week and from uh, the wonderful Dallas Willard, he says this, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer only when he was going to do what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess their belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible 
replacing it with dead ritual at best. Of course, this is not the biblical idea of prayer, nor is it the idea of people for whom prayer is a vital part of life. Now, again, simply, we just don't have enough time to wrestle with all these questions, but it would it'd be wonderful to bring this topic up in your life group this week. I'd highly encourage you to do that. It's part of the life group questions to wrestle with this in community. But if we're going to follow the example of Jesus who said things like, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it, John 14, 14. Jesus who said things like, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. And in regards to the parable of the persistent widow in Luke, I love this one, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Luke 18, 1. Yes, even if God doesn't answer right away. Yes, even if it doesn't make sense. Always pray and never give it up. Yes, even if I've been disappointed. Even if I feel he's not listening. Always pray and never give up. If I'm going to follow this Jesus, I have to change my mind about this piece of prayer. Now, does God always answer our prayers with a yes? No. But that doesn't mean it will always be a no, right? And, and I'm learning to simply, like a child, ask. There, if you think it's too big of an ask, ask it anyway. If you think it's too small of an ask, ask it anyway. Um, and so asking God to pick the perfect watermelon at the grocery store, right? Or cure my cancer. Both are on the table with God because he wants a relationship with you. John Mark Comer has a really nice way to wrap up this whole idea. He says, to pray is both a moral responsibility, because he truly believes that prayer does things, and a spiritual opportunity to partner with God to bend the arc of human history in the direction of his kingdom. But as we pray, we must never forget that through it all, God is forming us into the answers to our own prayers. Prayer is the way of asking God to do the things only He can do in the world. There's certainly some of those. And it's giving Him the time and space to do what only He can do in us. Amazing. Again, so much more to say on this, but let's move on. Give us today our daily bread. So now Jesus is taking this posture of asking and now applying it to our everyday practical needs. Certainly in the original context, most of the people in Jesus' day would be praying this prayer literally. Jesus, give us today our daily bread. They lived on a, uh, I, I work this day and maybe just receive uh, enough to pay for dinner that night. Some of us, something many of us will never have an understanding of uh, with, with all of our security around us. But God is trying to get us all to realize that no matter what, everything we really do receive is from Him. This is teaching us that no matter if we're wealthy or poor, every good and perfect gift comes from the hand of God. And so when He asks you to make a, a big change in your life, maybe a career change or, or start tithing or give some of your resources away to the poor, that we would really understand who it is that provides for us, that His hand gives it to us. This prayer also reminds us again of our, of our social responsibility as the family of God. Again, it's a plural prayer. It's not singular. It's not give me today my daily bread. It's give us today our daily bread. And so this opens my eyes to the needs of those around me. I mean, it would be really, really difficult as a faithful follower of Jesus who says, uh, uh, who, who loves him, who calls him Abba with full sincerity, who hallows his name, who asks the kingdom to come and his will to be done, to, to then get to this part of the prayer, knowing full well that your siblings are going hungry and do nothing about it. Now, clearly, this is a twofold prayer for Jesus, right? Jesus, provide for my needs. I have needs but also use me to be an answer to somebody else's prayer. Now, which kind of opens this side door really quick. We're going to look at it momentarily to this idea of listening prayer. Like I said earlier, this, this message really isn't designed to hit on all these aspects of, of our prayer practice, but I wanted to at least touch on this one for a moment because of how important it is. In fact, uh, Dr. Gary Brashears, a seminary professor, says this about listening prayer. He says, learning to hear God's voice is the single most important task 
of a disciple of Jesus. That's, that's a bold statement. Listening to hear God's voice is the single most important task of a disciple of Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. When's the last time you feel like you've really heard from the Lord? I hope, that, I hope it's often, but, but if it's not, man, that's a, that's a convicting statement. For Jesus to listen and obey is the most important thing in all of the spiritual life. It's one way of summarizing all of Christian discipleship, hearing the voice of our shepherd and following it, as Jesus describes in John 10 when he says, he is the shepherd and we are the sheep and he, he calls us by his voice and we follow him. We follow his voice and not the voice of the world. Now, there, there are several ways we can hear God's voice, and again, can't get into all that today because of time, but we can hear God's voice through, through Jesus himself, the scripture, circumstances, desire, other people, the prophetic listening prayer. Uh, but but uh, there's some great resources that I'll point you to if you want to learn more. But I sincerely believe that God is trying to communicate with us all the time. Like Ken illustrated a few weeks back about the radio, God is broadcasting all the time. Are we tuning in? Are we praying the prayer, let us become more aware of your presence? Now, but obviously just hearing God's voice is only one step. We have to hear, we have to listen and, and obey, right? Part of, our, part of a vibrant prayer life is to actually do what's being spoken to you. And I truly believe that obedience increases connectivity. I just do. It's my personal experience in hearing God's voice. And I do feel like there have been times uh, that, that in my life I could clearly hear the direction that God is, is speaking to me and leading me in. But I also feel like there have been moments in my life that I've said no to the little promptings. And every time I do that, it's like I, I sever a connection with God and it becomes harder and harder to hear God's voice. And so if you're struggling to connect with God, if you're struggling to hear God, I just encourage you, one, you might need to slow down and wildly unclutter your life. But two, if you haven't obeyed the last thing that he said, do that and then try to reopen your prayer life, okay? Got to move on. Uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Um, let me just say three, three really quick things about this. One, God can't love you through your mask. More accurately, you can't receive the love of God through your mask. The, the thing that I despise the most <laughs> uh, that, my, that my kids do, I love them to death. The one thing that gets under my skin the most is lying. I'm always more upset about the lying than anything else because the main reason is I cannot show them love when they're hiding. And if I do show them love, they'll, they'll always feel like an imposter because they know they weren't telling me the truth. They know they were wearing a mask. And if they never tell the truth, they will never be able to look me in the eyes and experience what forgiveness feels like. Church, God wants you to experience what forgiveness feels like. He wants you to experience the warm embrace of your Abba despite your wrongdoing. The Father's arms are open to the prodigal who returns. But you know what? The prodigal has to return. We have to learn to unmask, to come before our Abba and remember His favor, but we'll never know what that looks like if we don't confess. So number two, confession is actually one of the biggest pieces to reversing the curse of Genesis Two, this is, this is insightful. See, Jesus absolutely changed the game on sin. Confession is not this white flag. It's a victory flag, right? In the beginning, the consequences of sin, we hide. But in the kingdom, we approach God and we uncover ourselves, knowing full well that we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. As Hebrews 10.22 reminds us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So when Jesus is teaching us to pray, of course he's going to want us to come before God repeatedly for forgiveness so that we can constantly be in awe of how able and willing he is to forgive us. Now quickly, number three, just 
Forgiving others may be a stronghold for some of you. Maybe the one thing that you're holding on to for dear life that you can't seem to release to God. And we've got an entire ministry for this. It's called Celebrate Recovery. It meets on Friday nights, 6 p.m. And you're not alone. You know, we know you've been hurt. Uh, we know you've hurt others. And there is not an instant, immediate way to deal with this. Jesus knows this. This is why this is in here. You know, there are a whole bunch of sin-made barriers that, that dam up the waters to the Abba love of God, and a hardened heart towards others is one of them. So Jesus is teaching us, calling us to daily pursue honesty with God and forgive others. Now, last one, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's pretty important to address the spiritual issue of the devil when we're uh, doing a spiritual practice on prayer. If we don't wake up every day and realize that we are in a spiritual war zone, then the devil has already won. The devil, by default, is a liar, a deceiver, a truth twister, and he wants nothing more than to throw us off the scent of heaven. Um, Again, John Mark Comer wrote a compelling book called Live No Lies, And he argues that there are these three adversaries that work together to assault uh, any hope of human flourishing in God. These three evils are the devil, the flesh, and the world. And he says this, it's by spirit and truth that we're transformed into the image of Jesus. But the reciprocal is also true. It's by isolation and lies that we are deformed into the image of the devil. So as we approach God in, in prayer, we have to realize, again, like we open this whole thing with, that we are in a, we are in a war, that the enemy wants nothing more than to, to distract us from the things of heaven, to get our minds off of God, because the devil knows what we contemplate we become. He knows that. And so Jesus encourages us every time we pray to enter the spiritual war and to call on Jesus to deliver us from the lies of the enemy. So much more to process here, but we're out of time. To close, let me just read this this quote. Henry Nouwen says, without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Solitude begins with a time and a place for God and Him alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that he's actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding. We need to set aside a time and a space to give him our undivided attention. Jesus says, go into your private room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who's in that secret place. Matthew 6.6. 6. Now, the danger in a sermon like this is you hear all these things on prayer and just do nothing about it. So my incredibly simple challenge for you this week is pray through the Lord's Prayer every morning. Now, if you're just starting out, if this faith thing is new to you and this all sounds quite overwhelming and relationship with God is not something you've really fostered for a long period of time, maybe just read it word for word. Maybe just read it as slow as you can, leaving space between the ideas. Now, if you want to expand on this challenge, Use the Lord's Prayer as a template. Say one idea at a time. And then say your own idea, your own prayer that elaborates on that, builds on it, personalizes it. But then here's what we're going to do today as we close our service. As usual, the elders are going to come forward or be in the back and be available for prayer if you would like to just pray about anything that's on your heart. But, the, but I've asked the band just to kind of linger a little bit What I want us to do is this. They're going to sing a song, just a a beautiful song about the kingdom of God, hallowing his name, just what the kingdom is. But then they've they've prepared just several just moments where we can linger in prayer. Words won't be on the screen, but we'll leave the Lord's Prayer up. And there won't be any hard and fast close to the service. There won't be a you're dismissed. I want to invite you to actually spend some time with Jesus today. I know you may have kids. You may have to get them. Maybe get the kids, bring them back in. 
Pray with your family. But if you can, linger, stay, just spend some moments just absorbing your Abba Father. Do that. If you want to pray with, again, one of the elders or the person next to you or someone in your family, do that. Take an opportunity. But feel free to expand on that time however you see fit. And in the middle of your prayer, you, you may take the opportunity to take communion. We won't take it all together today, but I encourage you maybe as you work your way through the Lord's Prayer today, that as you get to the spot where it says, give us today our daily bread, maybe that's when you take this piece of bread and you remember that the daily bread of Jesus is both a physical thing and a spiritual thing. That the God of creation sustains us, that just as this piece of bread enters our body and fuels us spiritually, God is the bread of life and that he gives us spiritual life. And then drink the cup, which reminds us that he does offer forgiveness. So when we ask, forgive us our debts, he will do it because of this, because of the blood of Jesus. So take your time, spend some moments in prayer And when you feel released by God to go about your day, feel absolutely free. No pressure to stay as long as, but but stay as long as you need. Let me pray to close as the band comes up and just leads us in some musical words of prayer. Daddy, we we come to you needing you so much. We thank you for being close, Jesus. We thank you for being near to us. Thank you for giving breath in our lungs. We praise your name. We exalt your name. We just reorient all of our negative and misplaced thoughts of you. We replace them with truth, that you're holy, that you're good, that you're gracious, but also that you're mighty, wonderful, and awesome, beyond us and yet in us. God, we pray that your kingdom would be born in our hearts first and foremost, that you do a work in us and through us, God, that would come here in the now and that your will would be done in our lives, that we stop resisting your will and actually follow it, be participants in it. God, that you provide for every need that we have. We'd be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. God, because you've provided it all. God, forgive us. God, forgive us for sinning ourselves and forgive others that we may be harboring bitterness against. And God, protect us from the lies and the schemes of the devil and lead us not into temptation. We love you, Father. We spend this time with you. In your precious name, amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.